0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today's show is all about how we get around, like how difficult it can be to travel the West without a car, and how driverless cars might change our lives. But before we talk about the present and the future, let's start with the past.
1: Big team, big team, get up there, big team. Jake, back, Butte, get up there. We're taking this rig to Oregon. Get up there, big team.
0: That is writer Rinker Buck, who learned to call mules so that he could follow the historic Oregon Trail in a covered wagon, just like the pioneers. The trail united the coasts and shaped the West. Along for this 2,000-mile ride was Buck's brother Nick, a Jack Russell named Olive Oil, and three neurotic mules. Buck's book about the experience is called The Oregon Trail, An American Journey. We spoke last summer. And Rinker, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Ryan. You call this idea to do this authentic crossing a completely lunatic notion. And on on that note, I'm going to have you start by reading a section of the book.
1: Sure. This is early in the book where I'm trying to describe what kind of sense this trip made. (laughs) Only a delusional jackass or someone seriously off his medications would pull off the road at the Hollenberg Ranch one fine summer afternoon and concoct such a preposterous scheme. But you can't save an addictive dreamer from himself, and that jackass happens to be me. Already, powerful forces were drawing me west. I felt an irresistible urge to forsake my life back east for a rapturous journey across the plains. Okay, so
0: you make reference to Hollenburg Ranch in 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 Kansas. Kansas, Yeah, (laughs) you were visiting uh, the Kansas Historical Society, talking to a site administrator when you had this aha
1: moment. Right. What did he say that gave you the idea to take out for Oregon? Well, as soon as I walked the ruts a little bit, and I got very interested in the trail. You walked the ruts. That is, the ruts are still there? Yeah, in in many sections of the country uh, in, in in fact, from Casper, Wyoming to Cokeville, there's 350 miles of original ruts. We took them all uh, unchanged from uh, the pioneer days. But I was walking along the ruts in Kansas, and already the idea had uh, come to me. Well, I grew up on a horse farm. I've driven horses all my life. I worked my way through college driving racehorses and so forth. And I said, let's buy a team and get an old wagon and just ride the trail with my brother Nick, who's a better much even a better, more accomplished horseman than I am, and then I got down to the Hollenberg Ranch and the site administrator there, you know, the guy that sort of runs the museum and everything. Hollenberg Ranch was a road ranch along the trail in much the same way Seven uh, Eleven convenience stores today. Uh, <laughs> uh, literally, it was a log cabin convenience store, and uh, I said, "Well, somebody could still do it. I mean, you could get in, get a team of mules, and and he looked at me like." Um, I was the delusional jackass, you know, or he looked at me quizzically like, who is this guy? And he he sort of said, well, in theory, in theory, but nobody could get a covered wagon across the Oregon Trail anymore. It hasn't been done in over 100 years. And that, That just became a dare. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded like a challenge to you. Yeah. He wasn't challenging me, but that's how I felt about it.
0: Isn't, like, uh, some of the Oregon Trail paved over with interstates now? Or I mean, it's not all ruts, right? No.
1: About half of it is still the original ruts. Okay. The rest is paved. I'd put it this way. Think of the Oregon Trail as not that mythic historic thing that you saw about on Wagon Train or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, Or you read in the history books... In schools, kids, it's an organic route. It's an organic place that is still changing and growing today. So the sections that are paved over, which are mainly two lane blacktops and very easy to take on a covered wagon, they were paved over for good reasons. The trail went where people had to go and still have to go, and so it's a living
0: artery in many ways. It is. What is its connection to Colorado? So I'm hearing
1: differing arguments here. Some of the maps show that it passes just north yep. of Colorado. <clears throat> Well, first of all, the whole thing about Western history, which anyone listening can appreciate, is there's always more than one version, okay? There's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's many versions. We like the right one, though. You know, there's Little Horse Creek, there's Big Horse Creek, there's Medium Horse Creek, which is Horse Creek? So um, what happened was the, the Oregon Trail was just a generic name for the main trail along the rivers, the Platte and Sweetwater, uh, that, that brought everybody west, the California Trail branched off of that. The Mormon Trail branched off of that. But the first 1,000 miles was the Oregon Trail because that's where people were originally going. In fact, um, in 1849, the trail was greatly enhanced and traffic just boomed on it because of the California Gold Rush. Okay. In 1859, there was something called the Colorado Gold Rush. And the quickest way to get to Colorado, after you took the uh, riverboat system up the Mississippi and the Missouri, was to take the Oregon Trail to central Nebraska. And from central Nebraska, there was a spur, a cutoff, which was very common in those days. There's more than 40 cutoffs, which came down to Julesburg. Ah, Julesburg, Colorado. In the Craig area up in the north there. And then uh, there were separate wagon roads. So Colorado uh, actually played a very important part in um, uh, contributing to the uh, trail just before the Civil War. Then, during the Civil War, we couldn't run all our stagecoaches and mail routes through Texas because Texas had had succeeded and joined the Confederacy. So the trail was moved, uh, the Butterfield Overland mail route was moved north from Arkansas and Texas all the way up into the Midwest and then across the Oregon Trail. And the Pony Express, too. And a major stop along the trail was Julesburg. I want to talk about your relationship
0: with the mules. Mm-hmm. You actually wind up exploring a lot of mule history in this book. Yes. George Washington had mules. Mm-hmm. And you you disabuse the reader of some notions
1: of mules. Right, right. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, mules, when you, when you uh, crossbreed uh, a burrow to uh, a mare horse, you get all the feral qualities that that wild animal had. Uh, ability to withstand heat and absence of water for a long time. Mules have a larger peripheral vision. They have 270 degree vision because they got that from the burrow. So they can see their rear feet. Horses cannot see their rear feet. And so that makes them, that's why they're so sure footed and everything. But in addition to that, they have a larger cranial capacity and they are more thoughtful, more contemplative. And so what we might associate Mm -hmm. as stubbornness is Mm -hmm. an alertness, an aversion to danger on their part. When a mule is called stubborn, it usually means that the male who the man who runs that mule or, or is organizing that mule is a stubborn jackass okay for this reason <laughs> mules are smarter they will not be the feral side of them brings in a very s- strong self-preservation instinct so a horse if you tell him to just jump across the river will tend to do it a mule will say well i'm going to think this one over a little bit why don't you jump in the river first which i literally had to do many times on the trip and so the mule gets a reputation of being stubborn because they won't do something that uh, is new or puts themselves in danger until they're comfortable. You'd have to get out and demonstrate that it was safe to yeah. the mule, and then the mule would cross. It would take two or three times, but yes, there were many swollen streams uh, because we hit really bad thunderstorms in, uh, along the Platte River in Nebraska and Kansas. And I would get out, I'd extend my arms out so they could see how deep it was, and walk through this and, and so the mules could see it. And my brother... My brother, who has, uh, he's very different from me, and he has a very different attitude. He goes, okay, mules, here he goes. Jackass brother, I got, he's going to dip in the water again. Because he thought it was foolish, and it was something that I'd read in a book. And then after a while, when he saw that it worked, he said, well, I don't know. You know. Maybe he has a voice. Uh, Rinker, I heard recently an
0: account of, of someone who crossed the Santa Fe Trail. Mm-hmm. And um, how sore their rears were, because it's such an unsmooth ride. Did you get like
1: wagon butt? A wagon butt. That's a great term. I have to start using that. Uh, WB. Um, it only lasted for about two weeks for us. There's no springs on these wagons. I have a history of the covered wagon in there. The covered wagon was not designed specifically to cross the prairie. It was just a farm wagon that everyone had and we added a top to it. But yeah, you're sore and also an authentic covered wagon like we used. It's 38 inches across. Okay. And my brother is a substantial person. <laughs> uh, imagine going 14, 15 hours a day on a wagon with no springs. Yeah, but we, we put a little foam down and some blankets and stuff. But, yes, we definitely had WB. Okay. Here's what's remarkable. Um, this is not your first
0: covered wagon trip. It's something that you did as a child with mm-hmm. your father. Right.
1: And you thought your, your father was wacky at the time right. for, for making you do this. Well, I think the book is about um, what sounds perfectly uh, insane to you uh, feels right for me. Um, And you should pursue those things about yourself that are crazy. So we went on a covered wagon trip as children uh, just from our farm in New Jersey down to Pennsylvania. And it was this very mythical experience, and I never forgot it. So when it came up to the point of, well, could I go across the Oregon Trail – it didn't enter my mind not to do it, whereas it would enter most people's minds not to do it. So it's what's wacko about us that makes us achievers. I like that in the beginning of the book, you say that this was an
0: attempt at you getting comfortable with uncertainty. Yes. Learning to live with uncertainty, because there was a lot of uncertainty in your life when you began this journey.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, Everybody has picked up on that. Uh, It it wasn't such a big thing for me, but I I was divorced. Uh, I was kind of running around with a new bunch of friends, boozing it too much and everything. I worked for um, a genuine dinosaur of the American economy, which was a print newspaper. (laughs) So all of that stuff was dying for me, and and I needed a change. And so uh, that was part of the leap. But learning to live with uncertainty meant that on the trail – you just started off in the morning and you didn't know where you were going to end up. No one has taken a covered wagon 2000 miles in more than a hundred years. No one could tell us how often we'd have to reshoe the mules. They couldn't tell us where the road went. Our wagon maker couldn't make brakes that worked. We had to rebuild them and that ourselves. And what we do in modern culture is we move from one air conditioned igloo to another and we move from one certainty to another. And, um, If you're in a covered wagon, it's completely uncertain. You just don't. I mean, there were days when I I didn't know that the wind would be so fierce. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that we'd find so many swollen creeks. So we had to learn to live with uncertainty and just make it up as we went along.
0: On the back of the wagon that you took with your father, and Mm -hmm. then on the back of the wagon that you took later in
1: life, Mm -hmm. there was a sign. What did it say? On the back of the covered wagon we took on our 1958 trip because we were going through Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which was not very developed then, but still my father was worried that traffic would back up behind us. And and they'd say to this, what's this covered wagon doing out here? So he made up a sign. He had a sign maker make up a sign. We're sorry for the delay, but we want our children to, and then in large block type, see America slowly. Uh, You know, Marstown to Gettysburg, blah, blah, blah. So we had that old sign. It had been hanging on my brother's mantle in Maine uh, for the past 30 years. And I called him up one night when we were planning to make the trip, and I said, Hey, what's on the back side of that sign? And he goes, Oh, it's blank. It's just, it's just bare wood. I said, Well, why don't we paint it white and make our own side? So we carried a sign that you can see in pictures in the book and everything. We're sorry for the delay, but we want to see America slowly. And then we said, you know, uh, St. Joe to Independence Rock to Farewell Band, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And that's what we were doing. We were seeing America slowly. And what was amazing about it was people would pull up behind us on times when we were on roads. And they'd yell out their open window. They'd go, you guys are going all the way. i go, we're going to Oregon. Yeah, baby, you know. And (laughs) they saw that See America Slowly. They just got it. By the way, they just got it.
0: Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Great to be here, Ryan. It's fun.
0: Author Rinker Buck from last year. His book is called The Oregon Trail, An American Journey. You can read an excerpt and see photos from the trip at cprnews.org. hit that Oregon
2: trail, it's coming fall. I'm going to hit that Oregon trail, it's coming fall.
0: Today, our focus is how we get around the West. That's a view to the past coming up the present. And how difficult it can be to travel our region without a car. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. What would a Western road trip be like without a car? City planner Tim Sullivan found out. He biked, walked, and rode buses, all to point to what he says is our region's greatest challenge, sustainable transportation. He chronicles his journey, which was also on rails, in the book, Ways to the West, How Getting Out of Our Cars is Reclaiming America's Frontier. Sullivan dedicates several chapters to the stretch of I-25 between Denver and the Tech Center. Welcome to the program, Tim. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Let me say that you are not calling for an end to the car. Quote, it is clear the car is not going away, nor should it. But you say the West's over-dependence on automobiles has put in jeopardy all of the things we loved about the West in the first place. What do you mean? What are examples?
3: That's really how I structured the book. Um, I found that there were these key things about um, not only the West, but our country that were perhaps strongest in the West. Things like freedom, opportunity, adventure, uh, mobility maybe, might be the biggest one. That at first, the automobile really heightened and mm-hmm. really... Uh, really helped us with. But then as we became more and more dependent on automobiles, it kind of got in, way, in the way of those things and it became an impediment.
0: Yeah. All those words you used, freedom, mobility, I associate those with a car. Uh, how is that not the case anymore?
3: Well, I mean, I, I think let's, let's take freedom. What's happened is uh, our choice of the ways we get around, especially in the West, has been reduced to basically one. And that's uh, getting around in a car and that and one of the reasons for that is um, and one of the things I focus on in the book is that we've built our communities around this one transportation mode so that um, you know it's not so much our personal choice whether we're making the right choice or not it's that the very places we live don't allow us the choice to get around with with, with, on a bicycle or walking or, or transit we've really been reduced to one choice and I don't see much freedom in that. And of course, you see examples of how that's changing in
0: in small and medium and large ways uh, throughout the West uh, during your journey. You start in Las Vegas, and Mm -hmm. there you had an epiphany about what you call the failure of the West. Quoting here, We had created places built for cars, not people. This may sound overly simple, but think about it. Cars are easy to please. They only need room and smooth pavement. What people need is more complex. We are slower. We need shade and water. We like interesting things to look at and explore. How how did that epiphany shape your view of this journey?
3: Um, I think you know that was when when I was walking around with a planner in a in a neighborhood of North Las Vegas, and you know we were walking around this neighborhood that had been built during the boom of the of the two thousands. You know we were walking along a street that had about it was about a hundred foot wide street with five foot sidewalks. I just saw how you know our choices had been reduced, and that the other the other big thing you know that i, I realized is that just walking that simple human element of, of walking around had been eliminated as an, as an opportunity uh, in most western communities uh, that had been built in you know, over the last fifty years or so
0: let 's talk about your time in Colorado, so you made several stops here, and one was. To take a, a closer look at the I-25 corridor between Denver and the Tech Center, it is heavily traveled. And you dig into the history of the Denver Tech Center, this employment and population center that's about a dozen miles southeast of downtown. And
3: the whole thing may have started because of a dented car.
0: What is, what is right. this
3: story? <laughs> So in 19 I think 62 there was an engineer named George Wallace uh, who had a, a small engineering company a successful company it, it was in downtown Denver and he showed up one time to see his brand new Lincoln dented in a in one of the parking spots, and so he he'd had enough of the increasing congestion in downtown Denver and decided to go buy his own piece of land and build his own office park, you know where he said that the parking spaces would be twenty feet wide, and you know no one would ever dent his car <laughs> um, and so that's that's really what he did he He went out and and hired some planners, and that that became the Denver Tech Center. And others followed suit, other uh, other developers. And so you ended up with uh, several business parks that created a whole corridor of uh, new employment. And the vision was, you know, endless green space, endless pure mobility, basically an escape from all the congestion and obstacles of of central cities. But that's not necessarily what turned out to be. It did turn out to be for a little while. But one of the things that I argue in the book, and I think the tech center is a great example, is that you know the West has always been about this uh, economics of space, where you're producing more and more space, and then the space gets filled up, and so then you're creating more space, and then that gets filled up. So you're constantly, you know, running away, and so eventually tech center gets filled up. There's congestion both ways. You know, it goes from uh, thirty thousand uh, vehicles on I twenty five in you know the late seventies, early eighties to three hundred thousand now. Um, And so eventually you kind of have to figure out something else.
0: Well, of course, they added light rail to that corridor and they also expanded, widened the highway in a project called T-Rex. Has that made much of a difference from your vantage point?
3: I think so. Um, it's not a silver bullet by, by any means. But what it did, again, going back to it, it creates more more choices. And, you know, in talking to folks uh, along the Southeast Corridor, you know, it sounds like more, more households with, say, one car have been able to both get jobs and, and still be able to get to work. Um, it just created more uh, more opportunities for, for folks throughout the uh, front range um, to get to jobs al- along the tech center, um, along the, the I-25 Southeast Corridor. Um the, the communities have started to build more around the rail stations and the freeway interchanges. Um, another another example of how it's changed is, you know, companies have been able to think about parking less. So parking is a, a really inefficient use of space kind of by any measure economically. And companies have started thinking about providing less parking, those that are right, you know, right by the train stations. Because, uh, you know, if they have that opportunity for their employees to use light rail instead of uh, driving, then they're able to use that space for something besides parking and it's more economically efficient. Uh, So those are some of the ways that that it's changed. Um, The Denver region has, like other regions in the West, have uh, they've seen their what what we call vehicle miles traveled, which is the you know per capita overall number of vehicle miles that a, a household or a person travels, yeah. go down uh, since 2004. It's started to go up a little bit since the last year or so, but that's a nationwide trend, and Denver's been part of that. But, of course, there are more people,
0: um, even though they might be spending, on average, less time behind the wheel. Uh, just briefly, the Denver Tech Center is, I think, where you got hit when you were on your bike. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and so there is this question of once you get off of light rail, how friendly the interface is for pedestrians and cyclists. Lest you think bad traffic in Denver is a more recent phenomenon, um, you write auto congestion took hold of central Denver as early as the mid-1900s. A 1931 Planning Commission report noted a traffic situation that was increasingly annoying. But I was uh, thrilled to learn that Denver was also an early innovator in helping pedestrians. Will you tell me briefly about the Barnes
3: Dance? Henry Barnes was the traffic engineer uh, in Denver, I believe in the 1940s. And he I think Life magazine called him the world's greatest traffic engineer. He went on to, you know, other places and innovated quite a few things. And one of the things that he innovated, he was actually usually on the side of cars, but um, <laughs> you know, his genius did extend to pedestrians at one point and he created this invention called the barn stance, which <clears throat> became known as a barn stance, which was other, otherwise known as a pedestrian scramble where the entire intersection gets a red light and pedestrians cross diagonally or across streets in any way they, they want. So basically, for a, a signal phase, pedestrians get to, to have the entire uh, intersection.
0: And this has been replicated in many other cities, San Francisco, for example, where you can go sort of corner to corner.
3: Yeah, that's, how, you know, I, I lived in the Bay Area for 10 years, and that's that's where I uh, remember them from, especially or, uh, uh, Chinatown in, in Oakland. And uh, yeah, they're, they're great in, in very... Uh, Pedestrian-heavy heavy areas, they're, they're wonderful.
0: I'll say that I checked with um, a city planner locally who said that those barns dances have been removed from Denver, actually. Uh, they got rid of the last of them. Uh, but I never knew that they were invented here. Uh, yep. on, on your carless tour, I guess I would have thought that the longer stretches might have been the hardest to do carless. But one of your most vexing experiences comes in Flagstaff. Um, You get off the train. This is the Amtrak Southwest Chief, which you Mm -hmm. boarded at La Junta. Uh, And you have to get a bus, a Greyhound. So you are asked to Um, self-transfer. Tell us about that and what it illustrates
3: well i I took a, a, a ride on the Southwest Chief you know which which follows the old Santa Fe rail line you know through uh, the Colorado Plains and uh, down through uh, New Mexico uh, and then albuquerque then then goes into Flagstaff and I glide into in flagstaff 's beautiful old rail station there uh, right in the middle of town, and you get off and there are all these grand canyon bound tourists and it 's a wonderful you know, train experience. And then you realize that you know to connect to anywhere else, everywhere else, you have to get a bus, a Greyhound bus. And I was going down to Phoenix, and so to even go to go to such a major city like Phoenix, I had to I had to take a bus. And so uh, the problem is that the Greyhound terminal isn't right in the middle of town. It's uh, about a mile, mile and a half away, in kind of an industri- ugly industrial part of town that. Uh, I didn't have enough time to walk, you know, or put my bike back together uh, and ride it. So I, I got a cab, but um, I just thought it was kind of funny that, that it was called a self-transfer because you couldn't really do it yourself.
0: Well, and this speaks to, uh, I guess, what city planners have, have sometimes called the last mile or that's, mm-hmm. that section between when you transfer from one form of transit to another and you're kind of, you know, left up a creek without a paddle.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's actually, uh, to bring it back to the tech center, that's, that's an issue in the tech center, uh, that you get off uh, the train at, you know, Arapahoe Station or uh, Bellevue Station or something, and, you know, they're working, they're working on it, but it's tough uh, because, you know, like I said, the tech center was built without any consideration for pedestrians, and so retrofitting that landscape for connecting folks when they get off the train to their, uh, their job half a mile away is tough.
0: In general, how is Metro Denver for getting around Carlos in comparison
3: to the other Western cities that you experienced i think' it's, I think it 's up there I think it 's better than a lot of them because it's it 's so big. I think the the transit mode share, which is the percentage of people commuting uh, on transit is, is is higher in general. Um, I think fast tracks has helped quite a bit. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities to live in, uh, you know, central city neighborhoods where you can be carless. I think f- for me, um, in my work, a-, a lot of this is creating the conditions for someone who wants to make the choice to get around by their means. To create creating whole communities where that's an option. It's not necessarily. It'd be great if we could extend those options to the entire metro area. But um, I think creating communities that are affordable for, with, with a lot of different types of housing uh, to allow somebody the, the choice to live a transit lifestyle, I think, is the biggest goal. The and I think Denver's done a pretty good job with that.
0: Yeah, the, the choice so that if you need to take the car, you can. And if you don't want to, you can. And this goes back to this fundamental idea of freedom and mobility that you say we first associated with the automobile and now are looking for a different definition of.
3: Yeah, exactly. One one thing that I've seen in, in the tech center, um, the history—if you look at the recent history of it—is collaboration. Where, for for a while, uh, you know, Denver and Greenwood Village um, fought bitterly with uh, over annexation, um, and there's, there was this kind of fragmentation of the West. Where more recently. Agencies um, and cities have started working together a bit more. You saw that in T Rex, that was a national model for collaboration, um, and you saw it with with the private sector with these with these office parks working together with, with one another. And we haven't seen the full benefits of those, but those are starting to to come to fruition. All that collaboration, and I suppose that's a lesson you take that could be applied throughout the west and and that's
0: the the next question which is just what what do you what is the takeaway from this journey that you did without a car
3: across cities that aren't necessarily built for it well the takeaway for me if you step back i mean we're a really young american region we're a young region of a young country and i think one of my biggest messages with with this book is to say hey you know, this isn't written into stone yet. You know, like suburban environments uh, like we've built throughout the West are very hard to unbuild, but they're not impossible. Hmm. And there's a lot of opportunities um, for, for recasting these places. Uh, we're a young region. We're not, we're not defined by, you know, what our cities look like now. And in order to be, be sustainable, you know, we're going to need to figure it out. As I say, we've figured out how to, how to cross the distances and pump water across hundreds of miles, but we haven't yet really learned how to live here. And I think that's what we're just figuring out.
0: That is Tim Sullivan, the author of Ways to the West How Getting Out of Our Cars is Reclaiming America's Frontier. He joined us back in September from Salt Lake City. I tell- The future might be carless, or it might just be driverless. Our special edition of Colorado Matters, How We Get Around the West, continues after a break on CPR News. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is what people in 1956 thought the future of driving would be.
2: We're coming in on the beam, Dad.
1: Well done, Firebird 2. You're now under automatic control. Hands off steering.
0: General Motors predicted that by 1976, cars would call control towers and then zip across America on autopilot. The British had the same idea in the early 70s. A robotic car drives itself around a test track.
1: Look, no hands, and no driver for that matter. Scientists assure us that it's the shape of things to come in highway travel. This robot car is the latest project under study by the Road Research Laboratory. It's all done by computerized electronic impulses relayed to the car through a special receiving unit fixed to the front.
0: Driverless cars, as they're called, were a long ways off back then. But today, with cars that parallel park on their own and apply the brakes when you follow too closely, that future has practically arrived. Google and other companies are testing driverless cars. Last year, I spoke with Greenwood Village entrepreneur, Rutt Bridges, who has written a book about a driverless future. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. For transparency's sake, I want to say that you are a former CPR board chair. You and your former wife, Barbara, donated our headquarters building. Uh, Also, you're not directly invested in driverless technology, important to note. The name of your book is Driverless Car Revolution. And it investigates everything from what automakers are doing to the tricky details of the software behind this. Uh, I want to pay special attention, though, to the subtitle of the book, which is Buy Mobility, Not Metal. Uh, From just that, are you saying that people aren't even going to own their own cars in the future?
2: Well, some people certainly will. There are people that just love cars and and love the concept of cars. But for a lot of us, it's more about getting from point A to point B— than it is dealing with all the hassles of car ownership, and so rather than buying a car and and having all of the challenges that are associated with it, people basically will will uh, deal with a mobility service provider, something like Uber but basically Uber on steroids, Uber at a tiny fraction of their current cost. And a car would be dispatched, a
0: driverless car would be dispatched to your home or business if you needed to go somewhere, I suppose
2: emptying your garage potentially. Yeah, and making the possibility that you could use that garage for something else. Garage becomes a nursery or the garage becomes an office. Uh, So there, there are a number of changes that occur just beyond uh, the the obvious ones of of, uh, using these cars. It has an impact in many other areas. Why don't you paint a picture of what life would look like if cars
0: could be dispatched and you simply became a passenger in them?
2: So if I wanted a car, basically I'd pick up my phone, I'd call up the app, and it could either ask me by voice where I wanted to go, or if there were places that I regularly went, I'd simply click on that spot, and then the car would say, for a rate of this amount of money, we will take you to this place and we will arrive in three minutes to pick you up. Is there another passenger? Yes, no. And, and basically then the car would, uh, would show up, take you wherever you wanted to go.
0: And that could be a child who then doesn't have to have a mom or dad driving them to soccer
2: practice, I suppose. That could be a drunk person coming out of a bar. It, it could be either one. If it's a child, it's probably the parents that are going to have that control, though. They'll know where he's authorized or she is authorized to go, and, and uh, basically uh, they'll get texts whenever he's, he or she's using the car.
0: On what do you base this vision of the future? I mean, it seems to me that a driverless car future could go in any number of directions uh, in which we all have a car, and it looks a lot like it does today, except driverless, uh, or in the way that you're envisioning, which is this
2: kind of dispatch system. Well, the the basic reason is economics. When you look at the cost of owning a car, not just the gas, which too often people think, oh, well, I can, my mileage cost is only... The cost of gas, but there 's the depreciation on the car there 's the insurance on the car there's all the licensing on the car there are a lot of other factors that go into it so if you look at the at the actual cost of owning a car, you could save the neighborhood of, of anywhere from three to five thousand dollars a year by instead simply using these driverless cars also uh, one of the things i 've found out is a is a very strong uh, benefit from the perspective of most potential customers is the ability to just sit back and do anything you want to do instead of wrapping your white knuckles around the steering wheel and dealing with traffic you know reading the newspaper or something like that we're listening to colorado matters oh, i see <laughs>
0: uh as you looked at those who are developing driverless car technology is this where they see the, the future going? Is this where Google imagines it will go?
2: Or do they hope to sell you know, the Google car to as many people as they can imagine? Well, Sergey Brin, who uh, was one of the two founders of Google, has said that, that they really see the future as mobility services rather than simply selling cars. But if you look at the model that most of the automakers are considering, they're really focused, again, on selling cars. But the problem is these driverless cars, because they can use be used because they're shared, it's part of the sharing economy, uh, they'll replace anywhere from five to ten regular cars. And so this is going to have a very negative impact on the automotive industry. Yet they seem to be locked into this idea of continuing to sell cars. As you might imagine
0: they would, given that that's their business. We will talk more about the winners and the losers here in a bit. But I want to mention that you're not the only one saying driverless cars are coming. When I spoke recently with the new director of the Colorado Department of Transportation, Shailen Batt, this summer, he predicted that these robotic cars would be on the roads in five to ten years. And the point he made is that they would alleviate congestion by maximizing existing roads. We don't need to add lanes. We can shrink the width of lanes we have, and we can force more cars through because it's not drivers making decisions, it's computers. Is that what you have found in your research, that cars driven
2: by computers will move us along uh, more efficiently? They will for a number of reasons. Congestion impact to driverless cars comes from one thing, uh, from your ability to essentially squeeze more lanes into traffic since they're able to keep themselves exactly in the center of that lane and aren't wandering back and forth because they're looking down at their cell phone. Uh-huh. In addition to that, though, uh, there, there are other things that driverless cars can do, and, and there have been some trials on this already and some success with cars platooning, where they basically, like, like cyclists in a peloton, they're basically close behind each other and traveling at a relatively high speed. But since they're all interconnected, Since they're all communicating, when the front car hits the brakes, every car within a millisecond, a thousandth of a second, also hits all of their brakes. And so that's one way, but also just the reduction in accidents. Accidents are a big cause of congestion. And furthermore, road construction is a big cause of congestion. So if you don't need to build more roads, you're not going to have that factor. You believe, in fact,
0: that um, given the number of accidents that happen today, in a driverless
2: car future, they'd be drastically reduced, as would deaths on the road. Uh, Safety is a a big advantage of these cars. In fact, if you look at the trials that Google has done so far, in about 2 million miles of driving, part about half under under a, someone's control in half, basically completely hands-off, uh, they've had 15 accidents. Eleven of those were caused by being rear-ended by other drivers, and in every case, it, it was never the case that the Google car was at fault and caused the accident. It was always caused by human driver.
0: We're listening back to a conversation with Rhett Bridges of Greenwood Village, author of Driverless Car Revolution. More after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How we get around the West is our focus today. So far, we've considered the past, i.e. wagon travel. We've talked about the congested present, now the future, in which cars drive themselves. Greenwood Village entrepreneur Rut Bridges is the author of Driverless Car Revolution. And uh, naturally, people think about the, this technology being hacked, uh, you know that uh, not too long ago there was a lot of concern about planes being hacked sort of a nightmare for passengers. Uh, I imagine a similar fear
2: would arise if you were in a car that you had uh, little or no control over It's kind of an odd concern because the cars that we drive today have multiple computers built into them, and in fact, there have been several examples where in the Department of Transportation, for example, hired two hackers so what they what are called white hat as opposed to black hat hackers. And they went in and hacked a Toyota Prius and a Ford Escape. They were able to control the steering on it. They were able to control the brakes on it. So hacking is already a reality and a real problem. The real question, I think, is who can better protect you against hackers? Is it Ford or or, or Toyota or is it Google? Google that runs a huge cloud service uh, for managing the data of corporations and has a pretty respectable record in being able to do that, but beyond that, they also build very effective uh, uh, programs into the car itself, uh, for example, uh, every a thousand times a second, it checks the software to make sure that nothing has changed, and if anything has changed and it pulls over to the side of the road. The hacking that you said was done uh, under
0: the Department of Transportation, was at the Federal Department of Transportation? Yes. I see. Uh, gosh, I wonder what happens to parking in a world <laughs> like this, because the car doesn't necessarily have to stay where you are. It can be re right? You no,
2: know, the car basically picks people up, drops them off at the door or wherever they're going, and then it goes to get their next passenger. And so these cars are going to seldom be parked. When they're parked, it'll probably be more in the overnight or when the demand is low. And so for parking, it's going to have a, tr- a tremendous impact and a very negative impact for owners of parking lots. On the other hand, it's also going to free up a huge amount of urban space for development of high-density cities. I want to bring this back to the practical. Are we going to listen to
0: this interview Red Bridges, in five mm-hmm. years yes. and say how how quaint it sounds, uh, uh, life is still pretty much as is. I mean, is this a five-year, a 10-year, a 50-year projection? It, I think
2: in five years it will be pretty much what it is right now. I think in five years we'll begin to see commercial implementations of these vehicles. Uh, Chris Ermson, the guy that runs the Google Car Project, and there are other projects that are that are underway besides that. But right. he says that that his he has to have it finished by twenty twenty because his son turns sixteen in twenty twenty. And That's he knows he doesn't goal. want him on right. our highways. Uh so so I think it's probably more like uh in five years we'll start to see commercial implementations. In fact, uh some people argue it's gonna be twenty seventeen. We'll see. But the reality of it, it's probably 10 years or 15 years before it's, before it's really very common.
0: And there's no doubt that state departments of transportation, and as you've said, the Federal Department of Transportation is already preparing for the possibility of this.
2: And Ryan, one thing you'd, you'd mentioned before that we didn't really uh, dig into, and that's a safety issue. The safety issue of these cars, uh, they, they are believed to, based on all the testing that's gone on so far, to eliminate if there were all driverless cars, 90% of accidents. People don't really have a feel for the loss of life. Can you imagine if, if a 737 with 125 people on board crashed and every person died on that on a Monday and then it happened again five times that week and then it happened five times every week of the year? That's how many people we lose, 33,000 people a year. In automobile accidents. The majority of which you say would be averted with a driverless car. Absolutely. And is that yeah. backed up by research? It is backed up by research from about two or three other studies that have been done. Uh,
0: I want to note that you have a history in the oil business, petroleum exploration. I think it's important to be transparent about that. Well, I'm is... not
2: just transparent about it. I'm proud of it. Yeah, uh, is... It's very important, has been for, for a long time, a very important part of of uh, America. And is that that coloring your
0: view of this future? uh, Or do you see that this results in something of a separation
2: from oil if there's more efficiency or what? Well, I I think, as I say in the book, uh, that it's going to be a very tough time for the oil and gas industry. You know, if you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, they basically have, at current production rates, about a 75-year supply of oil. And I don't think 30 years from now, we're going to be burning very much oil in transportation, which is overwhelmingly the largest part of that business. And
0: so from your research, do you see that most of these driverless cars would run on some kind of different energy system?
2: Well, they're electric. If you look at the economics of it, unless gas gets down to about 75 cents a gallon, they're going to be electric vehicles.
0: A uh, bit of a prosaic question, but would these cars have steering wheels, an, abil-
2: no, an ability to take over if you needed to? If the technology is good enough, there's really no reason to have a steering wheel. Although in California, with the early tests, they are requiring a steering wheel. But I think we're going to see the steering wheels go away. Is there any kind of override function? There is right now. If I start
0: getting sick in a driverless oh, car. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> there's, a, for one thing. There's a big red button on the Google prototype, and if you hit the big red button, it pulls over the side of the road and stops. Okay, I, I take
0: some comfort in that.
2: Uh, why don't <laughs> Although we? Although they say they've never used it, we'll never see.
0: <laughs> I'd like to talk just a bit more about the winners and losers here. So your prediction in this book, The Driverless Car Revolution, is that the fleet of American automobiles, which is now to the tune of about 253 million, right. would be halved. If I'm GM or Subaru or Toyota, that is
2: not necessarily a future I embrace, and nor, nor would I if I work for them. Uh, absolutely not. You know, I think, I think it's not just them. It's car dealers. It's, it's a whole lot of people in that whole production chain. One of their problems with with these cars is that these cars last a very long time. Electric cars require much less service. There are no oil changes. There are no fluid changes. If you compare an electric engine to an internal combustion engine, its energy efficiency is, is far higher. And so you wind up in a situation where, for example, I used to own a Jeep. It had a pretty regular service interval, you know, in, in the sort of 5,000 mile range. Yeah. The the uh, Leaf, the Nissan Leaf that I drive, 3,000 mile service interval. You know, that's a whole different, a whole different thing. And, this, and so dealers generally make a fair amount of money from service. So that's gone too. So
0: this is a meteoric, not just transportation shift, but economic shift as you see it.
2: Yes, I do. And you know, t- I I think if you look at at technologies, especially these disruptive technologies like driverless cars, if there's a really compelling economic driver, which there is in this case, technologies get adopted. Furthermore, it isn't just about the, the financial part. It's also about gaining an extra hour every day to do other things. And has there been some forecast then of the jobs lost versus the jobs gained? Yes, um, there have been, but it's, it is difficult to know what the adoption rate of these cars will be. Uh, it's interesting to go back and look at the horse and the, uh, the automobile. You know, at the turn of the century, uh, around 1900, there were very, very few automobiles on the road. Uh, in 20 years, by, the, by 1920, there were very few horses on the road. So how fast will that adoption be? And what resistance
0: will there be to
2: it? Yeah. Well, one is people are just naturally afraid of the idea of a driverless car. Hmm. Uh, And not until they see lots of these running around on the roads uh, will they find that comfort.
0: Just briefly, in the last few moments, the winners uh, include, you think, uh, those who now can do something during their commutes. But you also say those who are immobile, who may not be able to to move around easily on their own, driving you know, the elderly, for instance. Yeah, that uh, can summon a car.
2: Sure, and and disabled community, you know, from people who are blind to people who are immobile themselves, uh, that, it'll be a great benefit for for seniors. It means they'll be able to live in their homes for many more years independently. That
0: is Rhett Bridges of Greenwood Village, author of Driverless Car Revolution, available as an ebook. And that is a picture of how we have, how we do, and perhaps how we will get around the West. I'm Ryan Warner.